I guess we should have prayed for Frank, too. We were going to have him sing, but then he comes in here talking like this. said, I can't sing this morning. So we're putting that off for a little while. And uh, we'll, we'll stay after you, though. We won't let that drop. And uh, when he gets healed up, then we'll we'll have him sing for us one other Sunday. Okay, I'm trying to think if there's anything I was supposed to be announcing, but I don't think of anything. Oh, yeah, that is one thing, actually. Uh, we want to have a men's meeting Wednesday if it's amenable to everybody as far as schedule goes. Um, we want to take the our list that we compiled here as far as purging and cleaning up our church role so that uh, we know where we're at there. And I think we've got some answers on some people that we had questions about. And so we're going to meet. I'd like to meet and get that settled. And then we'll come back and present those to you as a congregation and make our decision on those. So um, I'll put out an email about that, Bob. Thanks for reminding me. And if we can meet at 530 on Wednesday, that would probably be ideal for everybody. And then um, April the 18th is coming up. So finally I'll be doing, you know, that's last day to mail your tax return in this year. And I, don't, I know that most of you probably have mentioned it from time or two, but um, this is a real, my busiest and most hectic time of the year from February when we start preparing tax returns all the way till April the 18th or 15th as the time may be. Um, and then, of course, I continue on. Uh, people who are out of the country on the due date of your tax return have an automatic extension till June the 15th. You don't need to file a return or, or file a paper or anything to get it. You just automatically have it. So consequently, we have lots of missionaries who don't get their tax returns done or, or they're, we're in the process of doing them from April 15th to June 15th when they're actually due. So that puts me in a busy light. So I usually do around 200 to 250 of those every spring, which means I'm working till 8 or 9 o'clock every, well, Monday night, Tuesday night, Thursday night. Friday, I have a tendency to want to come home a little early, um, although I haven't always done that. And then Saturdays, I usually go in anywhere from 8.30 to 10, 9.30 usually, and stay till whenever I feel like I need to leave. Uh, I've stayed till 4 and 5 o'clock a lot this year, although yesterday I, I left a little bit early because I finally am seeing some daylight, and I think I'm getting caught up. So anyway, that's been my life for the last couple months and uh, will be for at least another week, week from tomorrow. And then the pressure kind of lets up. And it's like, boy, when April 15th or 18th or, you know, whatever the due date happens to be, it's like a load's lifted off of you. you. You can feel it. So I'm looking forward to that day to getting here pretty soon. Uh, oh, well, then, in light of that, and speaking of that, then, I like to take a day or two off after that's over with just to kind of recollect, you know, get my brain back in order, cobwebs cleared, and thinking normally again. So we may take some time off. I don't usually do that over a Sunday, but I'm not sure this year what I'm going to do. So just kind of throwing that out there and mentioning it ahead of time. And um, 
what else? I think that was it. So potential, if everybody can work it out, men's meeting on Wednesday at 5.30, and then we'll go from there. Okay. Um, I want to... Um, I'm guessing in a way I'm going to continue on with uh, what I've been speaking about the last couple of weeks regarding church, church meetings, church order. Uh, we talked about why we have an independent church, why we're not affiliated with another, even one other assembly in terms of a formal relationship, and why you don't, you know, why it's bad order to do that. And the example of the New Testament churches, which were individually autonomous churches. And, the and of course, then I didn't go into a great detail, but I even read about it some this week in the news, you know, about what we call federated churches or denominational churches or, you know, you got associations, conventions, and whatever. Any old way you describe it, when churches... Uh, affiliate themselves together and the dangers that go along with that in terms of control and what happens when you have a single leadership, whether it's an individual or whether it's a, a council of people or a board or, you know, whatever it might be. And even as loose, some churches try to call themselves fellowships or um, a convention or association in order to alleviate or do away with the harsh um, connections of a de the, the word denomination. As a matter of fact, even in um, even the IRS recognizes the distinction of such churches. They call them connectional churches, like the Methodist Church or other churches that. Um, have an affiliation with each other. Um, of course, there's all kinds of variations there. But even they recognize the dis difference and distinction between a related church, connectional, denominational, whatever you want to call it, and an independent, autonomous church. Now, I, didn't, I got started on something I didn't really intend to do this morning, but I'm going to take a moment just to give you an idea how even our government recognizes this. And that is in the, the area of, um, and maybe a lot of you don't even know this, that ministers who have a conviction against participation in a socialized program like Social Security and Medicare can opt, file a form, 40, form 4361, and they can opt not to participate in that program on their ministerial earnings. In other words, money they earn in the ministry, if they file this form, they don't pay Social Security taxes on that money. Now, a lot of people make the mistake of saying, well, I opted out of Social Security. Well, technically, excuse me, technically you cannot opt out of Social Security. So say, for instance, me, if I go to work for McDonald's, or Volkswagen, then I'm going to pay into Social Security. I don't have any options on that. But as a minister, if I so choose because, and it's only based on one thing, my religious conviction or because of my religious principles, 
then I have the privilege of filing that form and not paying Social Security. Now, of course, not all ministers do that, but a lot do. And when you change, um, well, let me back up again and say, basically you have two years in which to make your choice. So a person, let's say they're, they're gone to college and seminary or whatever, and now they're going to enter into the pastorate, and they're going to become ordained, and they are called to a church, and the church begins to pay them. Or in the words of the IRS, they would just say the church hired them. And they are earning money for the services that they are performing as an ordained minister. And because they are being paid to do the services that an ordained minister would do, in other words, they've been authorized by that church by the very fact that they're paying them, then his two-year clock starts ticking. And during that course of time, based upon his previous study and current, of course, he has the opportunity in his study of the Scriptures and the Word of God to make his conviction known, file that form. And then if he fails or chooses not to, then later, say five years later or ten years later, changes his mind because of further study of the Word of God, then he has no more opportunity, though, to file that form. You're done. In a denominational or connectional setting, the, in other words, if you're in, say, the, a Methodist church where they send you from church to church and you're basically assigned you know, where you're going to preach and be a pastor, then he has no op- more opportunity to file that form because he's under the umbrella, see, of that connectional church assist, uh, situation. But it's interesting, a few years ago, a person who was in a, I don't remember now if they were in a denominational connectional church situation or an independent church, but either way, they changed and went to an independent autonomous church. And this person filed that form. And basically the tax court came down to rule that because each church and and in this situation, this church was an independent church and it was autonomous, that his clock started all over again. In other words, he had a new two-year period. And, of course, that's beside the point here, as my point is in making that they understood the distinction between connectional, denominational, associated churches and independent, autonomous churches. And... That I would lead up to to say that helps, I think, for us to see just what dangers are involved even for us in such a kind of a situation. Because you think back now to this person, as long as he stayed in that connectional situation, then he took his authority from, as it were, the higher-ups in the denomination or the association, whichever it was. And that's what we've been trying to emphasize somewhat here. That's not the only thing, but somewhat in these messages is the necessity of maintaining your independence. And why is that? So that you can maintain your fidelity.
to the word of God. And that's the primary reason is so that we can be loyal to the word of God. And if we grow and change as we mature, as God gives us new light and understanding to the scriptures, and we want to be further obedient to the Lord's word, we have the freedom to do so. But if you're in a hierarchy of churches and you take your order, in other words, your doctrinal statement is set for you and you accepted that when you joined that denomination or that association, then you have no freedom to change. You're locked in. And so your only option then is is to leave, and which many do, by the way. And so this matter of the independence is, you know, it's, it's it's of utmost necessity. And what I want to talk about this morning then is that even for us, as an independent assembly of believers, it becomes incumbent upon us then to practice that same rule even here. In other words, I'm not the sole authority. And I never have, God's never given that authority to a single person within the assembly, at least as far as I can understand the scriptures and as far as I've studied that, that you don't take orders from me, in other words. I don't have the, the, the rule. And if I, I don't have the privilege of saying, well, then that's this is what this church is going to believe. Each has the right to make your own interpretation. And I want us to look at some things concerning this uh, regarding what the Bible says when the church comes together, when it meets in assembly, as we are here this morning. How is that? In other words, as much as we possibly could and as much as we know historically, what would a first century church meeting look like? Would we be meeting in a building like this? Would we um, be sitting in rows, you know, in pews? And what would the order of service look like? And would we have had a program, you know, to tell us, well, here's how it's going to be all handled and so forth? Well, that's a little bit, just a little bit of what I want to look at this morning. And I want us to look at, first of all, 1 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 4. 1 Corinthians 5, 4. Now this is just, and there's no particular, I mean there's an order here because I'm just going to move chronologically through these. They're actually all primarily in the book of 1 Corinthians where this phrase, when ye come together, is mentioned. If you look in verse 4, regarding the church there, he says, In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when you are gathered together, and my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not going to go into what was going on. Paul was simply giving instructions here to the church as to how they were to handle a certain matter when they came together. If you will look over at chapter 11 now, which is really a a key passage or a key chapter in all of this, although not the only. 
But Paul mentions again, specifically with regard to the Lord's Supper, how they were to can be conducting themselves. 1 Corinthians 11 and verse 17. Notice what he says there. He says, Now in this that I declare unto you, uh, or that is that I charge you or command you, I praise you not, that you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. And so this is some, you can see some negative things coming here. How they were, how the church at Corinth had been conducting themselves was not appropriate. Verse 18 says, For first of all, when you come together in the church, that is, when you come together in assembly, I hear that there be divisions among you. Well, that's obviously not of the Lord. We saw earlier that there's to be one mind, one spirit, one accord when God's people meet together. Verse 20 says, When you come together, therefore, into one place, this is not to eat the Lord's Supper. In other words, they they had other motives on their mind. Um, Down in verse 24, uh, excuse me, not verse 24, verse uh, 33, I'm sorry. He says there, Wherefore, my brethren, when ye come together to eat, tarry one for another. And if any man hunger, let him eat at home, that ye come not together unto condemnation, and the rest will I set in order when I come. And now, and of course, if we were to go through and look at this entire chapter regarding the way in which the Lord's Supper is to be conducted when God's people come together, then we would find that Paul's instructions were laid out very clear that there was to be a certain order within the assembly as to how these things were done. Turn over to um, chapter 14. Let's see. And just look, for the moment at least, a couple other verses. Verse 23, he says, If therefore the whole church be come together into one place, and all speak with tongues, and there come in those that are unlearned or unbelievers, will they not say that ye are mad? All right, so this is dealing with the whole idea of speaking in tongues or unknown languages when you come together. Verse 26, he says it again. How is it then, brethren, when ye come together? Every one of you hath a psalm and so on. And so the whole point is, is that in church life, in the life of the Christian, in the life of those believers who held to the faith, there was a regular coming together, an assemblage, a time when they met for common purposes. And, of course, there was instruction. There was worship. There was the singing of hymns or psalms. Uh, Apparently, uh, there were those who uh, compiled songs or wrote songs that were also sang in the church during those times. Look back with me now at Acts chapter 1, just for a moment as well. Acts chapter 1. And we'll just look at a couple other passages here before we move on. (coughs) 
Oh, I know why. I'm checking on something else now. I've lost. I was trying to get ahead, and it's a good thing I did because I was about ready to. Yeah. Good, good. Okay. I found it. Acts chapter 1, verse 6 says, When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And so we find that immediately upon the Lord's, uh, after his resurrection and during his 40-day ministry, they had come together and they had asked the Lord concerning this. Over in chapter 4 and verse 31, Some interesting expression there in verse 26. Quoting Psalm 2, and you've been through this many times, but notice what he says there. The kings of the earth stood up and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his Christ. One of the things that I think would be good for us to recognize here is that, is that there is a sense here in which when they're speaking, you know, and in this context, when they speak about coming together, they're talking about coming together for a united common purpose. And here you're talking about the kings of the earth, the leaders of the nations of the earth, assembling themselves together in a united front against the Lord's anointed king, the Messiah. Then you look down at verse 31 Notice what he says there. And when they had prayed, the place was shaken where they were assembled together and they were all filled with the Holy Ghost and they spake the word of God with boldness. So it was not such an unusual thing. And of course, I don't think we expected it to be to find that there was a regular basis upon which the saints of God assembled together. But it was not necessarily an appointed time. They did meet on a regular basis on what we call Sunday. And it became a common practice. But if you read the book of Acts, you find that they met apparently at different times of the week. It says they met daily. There were times when God's people would assemble in various places on a regular basis. Any day of the week. And these principles that we're going to look at, you know, would apply then to any one of those kinds of meetings. So let's go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 14. And let's just look at a few verses here. Back to 1 Corinthians 14. And let's just look at some of these things that Paul enumerated here regarding they're meeting together in verse 26, the verse which we've already read. And there he says, how is it then, brethren? Well, that takes us back to what has previously been said 
in chapters 12, 13, and 14, where he's talking about, you know, back in chapter 12, he was talking about the various uh, gifts and the varieties of gifts within the church and the relationship of the parts of the body to the whole and making application of gifted people within the assembly or within the body of Christ and their interrelationship and workings, all of them being under the head, which is Christ. And so there's only one true head in the church, and that is Christ. And then over in chapter 13, he gives us the major defining principle regarding conduct then. Everything is to be moderated by love above everything else. In chapter 14, he goes into the matter of tongues and proper order in the church. When people are there and evidently speaking in unknown languages. So if somebody came into our congregation and and they had a word to speak and it was Arabic or Spanish or... Hungarian or something, we wouldn't have a clue what they were talking about. And they were to keep silent unless there was someone there who was bilingual. That meant they could interpret for them. Now, and we're going to, that'll come back to us here as we proceed through the rest of this passage, beginning in verse 26. So when he says, how is it that then, brethren, in other words, regarding a situation like this, What should be the rule of practice for us in the church? And he says, when you come together, every one of you hath a psalm, song he wants to sing, hath a doctrine, hath a tongue, hath a revelation, hath an interpretation. Let all things be done unto edifying. Well, there's a overriding principle as well. It's to be done in love, but it's to be done unto edification. And so it's not to be self-serving. It's to not to promote oneself, whether they're preaching or teaching or singing or whatever it is. The goal, the motive for using your gift within the assembled people when we come together is for the purpose of edification. It's to build each other up in the faith. It's to encourage one another and exhort one another. Now, in verse 27, he says, If any man speak in an unknown tongue. Now, of course, the word unknown there is in italics. And you could literally say, if any man speaks in a tongue. But, of course, the implication there would be if he speaks in a language that you don't know. And, of course, the context bears that out when he goes on to say, let it be by two or three, uh, uh, excuse me, at the most three, and that by course, and let one interpret. So whatever they were doing, this speaking in a tongue demanded an interpreter because no one else was going to know what was being said. And he's giving the proper order for that. Two, or at the most, three. And so we find here that we, it apparently was a common practice, even in Corinth, as well as other churches, that more than one would speak. 
when God's people came together. It was not under the control of one single person. And of course, as we go back through the scriptures, if we were to examine what's said there regarding those who had been appointed by Paul, Timothy, Titus, and so on in the churches was what? Elders. It was normally plural. And so apparently there was in each church more than one elder. Now he says here, if there be no interpreter, let him keep silence in the church that is in the assembly and let him speak to himself and to God. Why would that be? Because there could be no edification. How could a person speaking in an unknown tongue and, and there wasn't anybody else there who knew that tongue to interpret, then nobody was going to benefit. Nobody could, could, could profit from what he was saying. And so he tells him in verse 29, let the prophets speak two or three and let the others judge. Now, this is a good, interesting verse and a defining verse for us because it tells us there that as many as two or three could speak at any one given meeting. And one of the reasons for that was to maintain proper decorum and order in the assembly. Decently and in order. He says, And let the other judge. Now the word other there is actually it's plural. And if you look at other literal translations, most all of them that I saw translated it in the plural as others. And let the others judge. And the word judge there is the common word crino, or it's actually diacrino here, diacrina. And it has the idea, of course, to, to judge has the idea of separating, making a distinction. And when you do that, it's like what a judge does when he hears the evidence. He sifts through. He separates. He makes a distinction as to the facts, and then he pronounces his judgment on the matter. And that's really what these who are hearing are to be called upon to do. Now, there's disagreement as to whether he means here the other prophets or the whole assembly is to do the judging. And quite frankly, from the context, it's not exactly easy to tell. At the very least, it would apply to the prophets, the teachers, those who spoke in the assembly. That is, though, and, and this is the next important point, and it's kind of hard to do these chronologically because they kind of fall together or overlap. But another point would be then, who are these prophets? They were the ones who were exercising their gift in the assembly, just like he spoke about back in chapter 12, about the gifted ones in the body of Christ. <clears throat> and so the prophets, the teachers, those who were spokesmen for God, 
bore this responsibility. And he's simply giving instruction here as to how they were to conduct themselves and carry themselves out when the meeting of God's people took place, when they assembled together for this common purpose. Um, He tells them that two or three could speak and the others then were to judge. And the, well, and then the next verse says, if anything be revealed to another that sitteth by. Now, see, that might, you know, I don't know, again, if he's talking there about a prophet, another teacher, or if he's talking about someone in the, just someone in the congregation, someone uh, who had come to meet with the, the, the believers that day. But he simply says, let the first hold his peace. In other words, there would be an opportunity for another to speak. One didn't dominate the entire situation. Another way to explain that would be that, you know, one is speaking. Maybe God speaks to that person's heart or he says, oh, I see what you're saying there. Or the Holy Spirit shows them something in the word of God. The scripture calls it a revelation, and they want to speak to that end. Well, they weren't to get up and speak two at a time. Let the first hold his peace, or as some would translate it, keep silent and don't say anything. And so we find that there was order then. And, of course, I think we know of many churches today that do great violence to that, where they're all... I mean, even in some independent Baptist churches, when they meet to pray, oh boy, I mean, they just all go at it together. He tells us in verse 31, For ye may all prophesy one by one, that all may learn and all may be comforted. So what was the whole point? It was to learn, to be taught. And to be comforted or encouraged, edified, or to be exhorted. And that's what we all need. When we come together and we meet as the Lord's people to worship, to study his word, to sing, to pray. We're all here and should be for that one united purpose. For the purpose of learning, for the purpose of encouraging one another in the faith to continue to walk faithfully. And when we see, you know, I'm just expanding now and talking about the general tenor of what church life would be like is when we have a brother who is faltering, one who is walking in sin, you know, then we're to seek them out. We're to seek to restore that one. We are seek to lift up the downhearted. We are to seek to, um, to pray for those who are in the midst of trial, that they'll have strength to go through the trial and so on. And so in all of this, we go back to what I spoke of last week, is that in all of this, it brings us all together to be as one, to be united in heart and in spirit and understanding under the headship of Jesus Christ. Another important point is in verse 32. And the spirits of the prophets are subject to the prophets. 
And as best I know how to understand that, it is simply this, that each one, when he speaks, is to be in control of his own spirit. Energized, empowered by God's Holy Spirit, but it's not some ecstatic utterance and speech that characterizes what we do within the assembly. But they were there to be controlled or under their own control. How do we know that? Because verse 33 says, For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace, as in all churches of the saints. So this was an across-the-board thing. Evidently, from this, we would gather that this was what Paul taught in all the churches, that this was a common practice that he expected to be going on in order to maintain order within the assemblies. Now, why would this be? Because you understand that we don't have a, an organizational, hierarchical uh, frame hanging over us to tell us what to do. We don't have some office from a higher up sending down the program each Sunday to tell us, here's what you're going to sing, here's what your message will be on this Sunday, and so on. Everything is to be under the guidance and direction of God's Spirit. Consequently, we don't tell each Nobody tells me what to preach. I don't tell Jerry what to teach or Bob, Mike, any of them. It's not for us to do. It is all to be under the lordship of Jesus Christ himself. And so then he goes on and, and tells, tells us a few other things about conduct in the church. You know, regarding women, he says, Let your women keep silent in the churches. For it is not permitted unto them to speak, but they are, to be, uh, they are commanded to be under the obedience, as also saith the law. And, and that's an interesting thought, too. You know, Paul's making comment here. The law says this also, besides the Lord saying this. And if they will learn anything, let them ask their husbands at home. For it is a shame for women to speak in the church or in the assembly. In other words, in the assembly, when they're called out. What? Came the word of God out from you, or came it unto you only? If any man think himself to be a prophet or spiritual, let him acknowledge that the things that I write unto you are the commandments of the Lord. And so, anyone who perceives or thinks that they have this gift of being a prophet... Paul's simply saying, then you judge what I'm saying. You discern what I'm having to say regarding this matter. And then we will have, you'll have the right understanding. It's interesting also, if you go back just for a moment to Acts chapter 13. Acts chapter 13. This immediately sends my mind to always to Paul's first missionary journey, Acts 13. This is where Paul and Barnabas were commissioned by the church in Antioch to go forth. But notice in the verse, first verse there, he says, 
Now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers as Barnabas and Simeon that was called Niger and Lucius of Cyrene and Manaen, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. What do we see here? A recognition that in the church at Antioch there were at least five who possessed this gift of being a prophet and a teacher. Paul's instructions were that in any church setting, of which here he is one of these five, no more than two or three should speak, probably, he says, and you know, the door's open. He didn't lay a law down there that said, nope, three is it. But at least only two or three at any given meeting. And it was all for the purpose of keeping proper church order, or we might use the word decorum. And, of course, then they went on as they were ministering to the Lord and fasted, these, apparently these teachers, but it could have been the entire church being spoken of here. The Holy Spirit, Holy Ghost said, Separate me, Barnabas and Saul, for the work whereunto I have called them. And when they had fasted and prayed... And laid their hands on them, they sent them away. And so they, being sent forth by the Holy Ghost, departed into Seleucia and so on. And so we saw either the representatives of the church, these five, or the church as a whole, sending Paul and Barnabas away. And yet we find another verse later, the Holy Spirit being the one sending them on their way. Okay, so... What are we, what is the value, what is the importance of all of this? Simply this. To remember that the New Testament representation for a believer is distinct from what we saw in the Old Testament. Old Testament saints were focused on a place with a physical building, with an altar, with a holy place where God manifested himself and was present with the people of Israel. Ours, in other words, it was visible. Ours is invisible. We are to maintain that spirit of invisibility in the sense that we worship the true tabernacle in heaven. And in like manner, a organizational hierarchical setting is a visible manifested setting of which many and those gain in a situation like that a mindset that allows them in essence to worship the higher ups. Now, I'm sure you've heard, you know, I mean, I've even heard people joke about it, you know, like wherever the, you know, just like uh, the, uh, the Muslims, you know, they would bow three times a day or five times a day towards Mecca. And if you hear some people talk about their denominational headquarters and somebody who's loyal to the denomination, something like, well, yeah, he bows three times a day towards and then names the city where the denominational headquarters is located. 
I mean, you've heard that. You've probably heard things like that said. But the fact is, it's a reality. And the fact of the New Testament is, we are to be apart from that. And we are to worship in the Spirit. And it's imp- it is, and I'm really emphasizing it because it is an important principle that we learn to walk by faith. And this is one area in which we need to learn to walk by faith and to practice that and have the mindset then that when we come together, when we meet, it's going to be for that same purpose. Okay, I'm done. I said what I wanted to say. Um, And you know, it's interesting. I mean, I could just as freely and easily say right now, you know, Two, as I understand the scriptures here, any of the gifted teachers in this assembly, do you have a word from the Lord? And it would be just as profitable and proper if they had a word to speak, to stand, and I would be quiet and go sit down, and they could come speak equally. But it's a proper understanding of who the gifted ones are. And I would dare say that if I was to go to ask any of you privately, you know, who in this church would you identify as somebody who had the gift of teaching? It wouldn't be rocket science for you to figure it out. And it's pretty easy in many regards to look at each one of us and identify what it is that we're gifted at, whether it be hospitality or administration or helps or any of the other numbers of gifts that are mentioned in the New Testament. It's just that for manifesting those gifts, you know, teachers have an unusual case, an unusual responsibility to stand up before a group of people and ensure that what they're teaching is loyal and faithful to the word of God. And that's where that's surely the world where I want to be. Because I think it's very, very soon, and we're going to be standing before the Lord of the earth and the judge of all the earth. Let's pray. Father, in Jesus' name, we come before your throne to send up our gratitude and praise to heaven and thanksgiving for your mercy and the grace that you've shown unto each one of us. And I pray, Father, that as we study this word and as we look to the things going on around us, as we discern the the times and the seasons in which we live, and as we see the approach of the end of this age, Father, I pray that you would just show yourself in a marvelous and wonderful way to us, ways we've not known before that our hearts might be drawn to you and knit together in love. Lord, grace us with your presence, we pray. And as we go about our lives and living out our faith before you and before a watching world this week, I pray that we, we would do so with the utmost of loyalty and obedience to Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.